in the next three weeks, we're starting something here at St. Peter's called Villages. All villages are, are midweek, mid-sized groups for us to gather together in community. Beyond that of Sunday, we've got four lined up and from next week, they're going to be profiled on the website. We've got some amazing leaders leading them and you guys can just go and sign up on the website and then you'll find out more about when they're meeting. So the obvious question is, why are we starting villages? Why are we bothering doing something um, midweek? And just something that Hanel and I, my wife and I, really felt when we came to lead this church just over a year ago now was that God wanted us to lead a church that felt like family. And the one verse that kept coming up again and again and again to us was this verse from Psalm 68, verse 6. It says, God sets the lonely in families. God sets the lonely in families. And you might have read about this in the news. You might have heard about this from other people. But essentially, there's a loneliness epidemic in this country. In fact, experts predict that this will be the single biggest drain on the NHS in the coming years. This idea that actually there are so many of us who are lonely and as a result have medical and health problems because of our loneliness. And there's been studies that have been done that have proven the link between loneliness and bad health. In 2017, there was a study done that said not having a meaningful connection, not having a consistent connection, intimate connection with somebody else, a meaningful connection, is as bad for us as smoking 15 cigarettes a day, physically for us, not emotionally, physically. This idea of an intimate connection with other people is ingrained in who we are, it is how we are supposed to be. We're created for connection. And perhaps the most alarming statistic coming out of what's going on and what we're hearing about more and more from these experts that study this sort of thing is that 86% of millennials, that's millennials, that's people who are supposed to be in the prime of their life, who are supposed to have these connections going on all around them, should be in the prime of their relational life. 86% of millennials feel alone on a consistent basis. 86%. And so one thing that we felt as a church, and church in general should be the antidote to, is this loneliness that we're coming up against in society. Church should be the antidote to loneliness. And that's why we often say here at St. Peter's that we believe church should feel like a family. Church should feel like a family when we gather together on Sunday. In fact, family is the most common metaphor used for the church in the New Testament. So there's 139 times we're referred to as brothers and sisters by the New Testament writers. 63 times father is mentioned. 17 times son or daughter is mentioned. 39 times children are mentioned. 19 times inheritance is mentioned. In Paul's 13 letters alone in the New Testament, met like Comparing the church to family is mentioned 277 times. The overwhelming sense as we read the New Testament, as we read what Christianity is supposed to be about, as we read what church is supposed to be about, we get this sense from the New Testament that church is supposed to be like a family. Not an event, not a charity, not a business, a family. 
So the question for us as church and as a church trying to create a family on Sundays is what does this look like? Well, we've started talking about these three elements, these three things that we think need to be present among us as a community if we're to function like a family. The first is that we become fully known to each other. The second is that we're unconditionally loved because who knows when you make yourself fully known, you really need to be unconditionally loved as the bad, the ugly, everything's on display. And the third is that we're encouraged to become who we're called to be. So as a family... As a church, we are supposed to foster these three things so that we can thrive as a church and in family. And over the next three weeks, as we talk more about villages, we're going to take those one by one. This week, I'll do fully known. Next week, Chris is talking about unconditional love. And then the final week, we'll talk about calling. So what does this have to do with villages? Well, being a family is hard to do, I think, if we just meet together on Sundays. So a group this size is actually impossible to do family with and in. We, actually, we need um, a smaller groups that are midweek in order to be able to actually make ourselves fully known, in order to be unconditionally loved, and in order to encourage each other to be who we're called to be. So that's why we're starting Villages, and that's why we're encouraging everyone who would consider themselves a part of this church to actually join a village and get involved with what's going on. So this week, fully known. How do you feel about making yourself fully known. How do you feel about those of us in this church family, not just knowing the good, not just knowing the highlight reel, but also knowing the bad and the ugly parts of our lives? How do we feel about that? The experts say that neurobiologically, we're actually created for connection. And the thing about connection, intimate connection with each other, is it's impossible unless we're able to make ourselves fully known to each other. Not just the surface level, not just the stuff we want other people to know about us, but fully known. And obviously, this is incredibly difficult to do. Now, attachment experts, the people that talk about this sort of thing, about connection between humans, essentially outline three things, three reasons why humanity as humans, we actually avoid intimate connection. There's three areas that we tend to fall in. And again, I am not an expert in this sort of thing. This is my layman's um, version of it. But also, as with any generalization, they're only partly true. Sometimes we flow in between the three. But the first of these three reasons, reasons why we find it hard to connect is esteem sensitivity. This is for the perfectionists or the performers among us. Those of us who like to be perceived positively in relationships, we would be referred to as esteem sensitive people. Now, why is this an issue when it comes to being fully known, comes to being family? Well, if esteem-sensitive people are fully known, then inevitably they're going to be found out to be imperfect, aren't they? which is catastrophic for those of us who are in this group because it opens ourselves up to criticism. It opens ourselves up to others knowing that we're not perfect. And so as a result, we don't go into these meaningful connections, these deeper connections, because we don't want to be found out as imperfect. And the result of that is we're lonely. We're alone. We don't feel connected. Second group of people who find it hard to connect, safety sensitive. This is the aloof among us. This is the people who really desire close relationship. We want to be in intimate connection with each other, but when people get too close, we panic and we run the other way. So we, do, we play this little game with other people. We say, come closer, come closer, too close, run away, and then you leg it the other way. You can't get into these intimate relationships. Why? Because you feel like the other person who's getting close to you is going to overwhelm you is going to control you. 
If you've ever had that experience in relationships, then you would probably be safety sensitive. You can't cope with this idea of people being intimately involved in your life. And those people who have this tendency in relationships tend not to get into intimate relationships. And as a result, they're lonely. We're alone. We don't have the connection we were created for. Final group of people. Sorry, this is a bit uncomfortable. We'll get to the good bit. Separation-sensitive people. These are the people people. Now, on the surface, you would imagine these people are brilliant at intimate relationships. Safety-sensitive people love other people. They spend all their time thinking about other people, all their time in relationship with other people. But separation-sensitive people, essentially, their sense of self comes from relationship with other people. And this is a problem. It's a problem because they are threatened by any perceived distance or lack of focus on relationship. The result is they'll do anything to make the relationship work. So as soon as the other person in the relationship seems to be distancing themselves from it, they will do everything they can to keep that relationship going, even to the point of harming themselves. Why is this an issue? Well, it's an issue because if separation-sensitive people are fully known, then their needs and wants will be on show and they think they will then be rejected. And so they don't want to get in these close relationships, the kind of relationships where you're really known, not just the surface-level relationships where you're helping out the other person the whole time. And the result is loneliness, being alone. The point is that we all have stuff that we all have baggage, don't we, in our lives that stops us from connecting in the way that we should be connecting, stops us from having these intimate relationships, stops us as a church from relating to each other as family. The issue we have is that in the New Testament, we are told that we are supposed to be like a family. We're supposed to be fully known to each other. Scientists, those who are experts in this sort of thing, are also telling us the health benefits are catastrophic unless we pursue these kind of relationships. We will not live life in all its fullness unless we can get over those three things and start to connect and make ourselves known to each other. So what on earth are we supposed to do about it? How are we supposed to solve this? Well, unsurprisingly, the answer starts for Christians with God. And the first thing to realize as we take this step to becoming more fully known to each other is that we need to know and experience that we are fully known to God. This is the classic psalm that people quote when we talk about this kind of thing. It's Psalm 139. It says this. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise, you perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is even on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. This is a psalm written by a guy called David who was a worship leader in the Old Testament. And when you read the entire psalm, you get this overwhelming sense that David knew that he was intimately known by God. Now, 
Clearly for David, this was a good thing. For anyone else who's normal, I think, reading this psalm can actually be incredibly terrifying. I don't know if I like the idea that God knows every single thought in my mind before I even express it in words on my tongue. I'm not sure I like the idea that God is watching me when I wake up in the morning, when I go out at my door at night, everything I do during the day, when I come back in the evening and lay my head down on my bed. I'm not sure that's actually as comforting as David makes it out to be in this psalm. There's a classic uh, illustration or example that's used in Alpha courses when talking about this idea of separation between people and God. And you might have heard it if you've done an Alpha course. But essentially, what happens is they say, imagine you're in a cinema and you've come to the end of your life, you've died, and instead of going to heaven, you're sitting in this cinema. And the cinema's totally empty, except you sitting in the middle of the cinema, watching this screen, the lights come down, the the film starts to play, and about 10 seconds into the film, you realize this is a film about your life. Everything you've ever done, everything you've ever said, and easily the worst, everything you've ever thought on the screen in front of you. And so, the film will play out and you sit there and watch it. How would you feel watching that film? I imagine there'd be moments of real enjoyment. Your wedding day, if you're married, children, if you've got children, the time you went to university, had loads of fun, times in your life when it's exhilarating and it's fun. But I imagine there will also be times as you watch that film where you will cringe and crawl up into a ball and not want to watch it because it's embarrassing, because it shows everything. You are fully known, and that's just to yourself. And then the example goes on like this, and this is horrific. I wonder if they use this anymore. But the film comes to an end, credits come down, you're getting up to run out the room because you think that was awful. Before you can get out the room, the back doors fling open, and everyone that just starred in the film of your life starts pouring into the cinema, sitting down next to you. The film starts up, and to your horror, you realize you're about to watch the whole thing again with the people in it. Everything you've ever done, everything you've ever said, everything you have ever thought about your colleague at work, with your colleagues sat next to you. What would be your response? I imagine there'd be moments where you'd be embarrassed, you'd want to run out the room. So how is it that David can write Psalm 139? The reason I think he writes Psalm 139 about God knowing everything is because of this verse. He says this, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know you full well. He invites even by asking God to go even deeper to perceive his thoughts and see if there's anything offensive in him. How is he able to write that? How is he able to say to God, you know me like you know me, but I want to invite you even more intimately into my life. I think he can say it because of this verse, verse five. This is what it feels like to David, to be hemmed in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Now, we might think that sounds constrictive, but actually the verse there, the words there in the Hebrew, to be hemmed in behind and before was incredibly comforting to David and to those who would be hearing those words because it meant protection. It meant that you were safe. It meant that you were comforted. It meant that you weren't alone. When David says, you lay your hand upon me, that's a Jewish euphemism for essentially saying God blesses him. As you lay your hand on someone, you bless, you speak well of, you encourage, you build up. You tell the person you're laying your hand on that they can be who God has created them to be, that they're going to be all right. 
The reason David's able to allow God in that far is because he knows the character of the God he worships. He knows that God isn't out to judge us, not to control us, not to constrict us, but he's in it to bless us, to help us to live the life that we were called to live. To be fully known by God is the most wonderful reality. So, first step to us being fully known as family here at St. Peter's. First step is to know that we are fully known by God. Second step, God has made himself fully known to us. This is John 14. This is just as the disciples are beginning to realize who Jesus is. So they're having this revelation of the person of Jesus. And this is what Jesus says to them. He answers, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father, comes to God, except through me. If you really know me, he says, and the word know there is this intimate, deep connection. The same word is used in the Hebrew when Adam says to Eve, or the writer of Genesis says that Adam knew his wife. Obviously, I'm not talking about sex, but the point is, this is the most intimate connection you can have with somebody. Jesus says that his disciples knew him on this level. If you really know me, you will know my father. You'll know God as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip then says, Lord, show us God that we, that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, you're an idiot. Don't you know me? He didn't say that. Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen God. Jesus. Anyone who has seen me has seen God. What's the point? We needn't guess anymore at what God is like. Jesus walked, talked, lived in our space-time continuum to show us the character of God, to show us who God is like. So what is God like? Well, can I suggest that he might be a little bit like Jesus? Firstly, Jesus was above it all. If God were to reveal himself, we'd expect him to be above all the nonsense that we experience in life, free from the material, political, social powers that distort our lives, free from the influence of money and status that can leave us empty, free from social expectations of the time, free from Brexit, free from Trump, free from so many things. If God were to reveal himself, do you not think he might be a little bit like Jesus? As you read the Gospels again and again and again, you come across somebody who is completely above it all, totally unaffected by the things that trouble us so deeply. Secondly, if God were to reveal himself, we'd expect him to be unquestionably authoritative. The constant refrain we hear from those who heard Jesus, friend or foe alike, was that here is a new teaching with incredible authority. Here is a man with a message and a purpose and a drive. He was unquestionably authoritative, but it wasn't nasty. He wasn't judgmental. He didn't belittle or ostracize or condemn. He just had undeniable authority. If God were to reveal himself in human form, do we not think he would be a little bit like that? Thirdly, if God were to reveal himself, we'd also expect him to be astonishingly kind. Has there ever been a more caring person than Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus, who responded in the same loving way to all comers, friend and foe alike, moral and immoral alike, who went out of his way to love the unlovable, the kind of person who would actually notice you and me. You and me, with all our good and all our bad, with all our bruises and all our imperfections, with all our beauty and with all our hurt, all our strengths, weaknesses, and despite seeing the entirety of us, instead of judging us, instead would assure us in a way that we could never doubt that he loves us exactly as we are. 
If Jesus, if God were to reveal himself, he would be astonishingly kind. And then finally, if God were to reveal himself, would he not also be undeniably powerful? According to the Gospels, Jesus, who is normal human sweat, blood, and tears, was also recorded to have fed 5,000 people with a few loaves of bread and some fish. If that's not enough, he also walked on water and calmed a storm. Jesus had extraordinary supernatural power to heal the sick and to free people from evil and to raise the dead. And as a result, wherever Jesus went, huge crowds followed him to see the power that he seemed to have in him. In fact, if you read the Gospels, it would be fair to say that Jesus has either just done something miraculous, is about to do something miraculous, or is in the process of doing something miraculous in that moment. Oh, and by the way, he also regularly forgave people's sin. He offered people life in all its fullness. He promised life after death, and to top it all, we're told that he came back from the dead. Who could do that? If God were to reveal himself, do we not think he might be a little bit like Jesus? Self-confident, but not self-related. Driven, but not detached, gentle, but not weak, free, but not feckless, powerful, but not oppressive, kind, but not codependent, a leader, but not a dictator, a servant, but not submissive. God has made himself fully known in the person of Jesus so that we need no longer guess at what God is like. And the question for us is why? Why does God do this? Well, we know, don't we, that God has done this because we were created to have that same relationship with him. We were created to have the most intimate, loving, meaningful connection with God the Father. But that's not the end. If we're fully known to God, if God has made himself fully known to us through the person of Jesus, then what about the experience that the early church seemed to have had with each other? What about this concept of family? Because as you read about the early church, you find out quite quickly that as they love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, as Jesus told them to do, there seems to be a similar type of love between those in the church. It seems to be like the love that they have for God flows through them to the other people. Jesus tells them, doesn't he, in his kind of parting speech to them, he says, love one another as I have loved you. Jesus wouldn't tell us to do that kind of thing unless he gave us the ability to be able to actually do it. And so this mutual love between those who formed part of the early church was so powerful that Paul describes it as like a human body. So I'm just going to quickly read this passage. This is 1 Corinthians 12. We're to be fully known to each other like this, Paul says, for just as the body is one, and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body. So it is with Christ. Just as the human body is like that, so it is with the church, who's Jesus' body. For in one spirit, he says, we were all baptized into one body. Jews, Greeks, slaves, free, we're all made to drink of the same spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. What's he saying there? He's saying that when we become a Christian, we become part of this living organism of the body of Jesus. As a church, we are different body parts that make up the body of Christ. He goes on to explain that even though we're different as different parts of the body, none of us are less valuable than the others. And then he ends the analogy with this from verse 24. He says, God has composed the body in this way, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division, that there may be unity in the body. 
but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Here's the point of what Paul's saying there in the letter to the church in Corinth. If we're not fully known to one another, we're never ever going to be able to function as the living organism of the body of Jesus that we're created to function as. Right here is why I believe that church is actually the answer to this loneliness problem. It's the antidote to loneliness. And it's in this verse where it says, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honoured, all rejoice together. In other words, as a church family, we don't just share the highlight reel. We don't just share the times when things are going really well. Instead, we share the times where it's not going well. We share the times in our life where we don't feel like we're on top of things. And as a result, the church as a body together cares for one another. We become one. We're unified. If one member suffers, we all suffer. If another member's honoured celebrating, we all celebrate together. Only then, Paul says, can we belong as a church. Only then can we be a family. Only then can we truly know what it's like to be part of the body of Christ. So the key question is this, how do we actually connect on this kind of level? Because that seems incredibly hard to do. And the answer really is inherent in all of those steps of being fully known to God, of being fully known, um, of God making himself fully known through Jesus and then fully known to each other. The answer is vulnerability. If you look at each of their steps, there's a choice that each person makes in those scenarios to become vulnerable to the other. So David in the psalm, he's fully known by God. God knows everything about him, knows every word that he's about to speak, even before it's on his lips. What does David choose to do? He chooses to step in and become even more vulnerable. He says by the end of the psalm, search me, God. See if there's any offensive way in me. Know me even more intimately. David makes a choice to become vulnerable before God. Same with Jesus, who being in the very nature God, the writer of Philippians says, actually came and made himself nothing, made himself vulnerable to us. So vulnerable, in fact, that his enemies crucified him on a cross. He made himself vulnerable so that, as humanity, we can have this intimate connection with our Father in heaven. He chooses to make himself vulnerable. And it's exactly the same with us as members of the church, members of the body. We have to make a a choice. We have to choose to be vulnerable with each other. It doesn't get more vulnerable than this idea of a body. I like to think it's naked because that's more vulnerable. This body, as a church, we're a body. We're vulnerable to each other. There's um, a lady who's a doctor, actually, and studies this sort of thing, who's been doing the rounds for a number of years. She focuses on vulnerability, talks a lot about vulnerability. She says this, vulnerability is the birthplace of love, belonging, joy, courage, empathy, and creativity, a lady called Brené Brown. She says, vulnerability is the birthplace, the creation, the place where this stuff happens of love, belonging, joy, courage, empathy, creativity. What does it look like to be a church family? It looks like we are a petri dish. We're a place where you can belong, where you can have joy, where you can have love, where you can be encouraged, where you can empathize with each other. When we suffer, when one person suffers, we all suffer. When one person rejoices, we all rejoice. This is what the church is supposed to be like. But the problem with this in church is it's incredibly difficult to do. 
Why? Because it opens ourselves up to be hurt. Because in order to be vulnerable, as I'm suggesting we should be as a church and in our community groups, we need to be able to trust one another. Remember what I said about those core sensitivities, so esteem sensitivity essentially doesn't like to be wrong, criticized. Um, safety sensitive, so come close, but not too close because I don't want to be controlled, I don't want to be overwhelmed, go back. And then the final one, separation sensitive, you can come really close back, but you can't really know my needs and wants because it might mean that I'm rejected and therefore you will run a mile and rejection is the worst thing for me. Those sensitivities stop us from having these intimate connections in church. Last week, um, many of you will know, because you've been incredibly kind, that Lulu, our middle daughter, a couple of weeks ago now actually, had a really bad accident. She was burnt quite badly on her back uh, because I was an idiot, essentially. She was sitting at the top of a slide going into a pool. I was filling the pool with a kettle of hot water, and she slipped down the slide as I was filling it and went right under, under the kettle. And as a result, went to hospital, has third-degree burns on her back. And one week ago, people prayed um, that she would be healed, that the third-degree burns would become less brutal, essentially, so that she wouldn't have to have um, a graft. And as a result, we went back last Friday, and the doctors were amazed at the healing. Before, they said on the right side of her back that she would definitely need a graft there. And on the left side, they were saying it was on the fence. It might go either way. When we went back this last Friday, the left side is completely healed up, absolutely fine now. And the right side has shrunk by half. And they're now sitting on the fence with that. And they're giving it another week to see if it's healed. And so hopefully on Friday, we're keeping praying, but we're hoping that she won't need a graft at all. Now, I'm going to let you into um, myself a little bit here. I'm safety sensitive. So when that happened with Lulu, Hanau suggested that we tell some people uh, about it so that they could pray. And I said, absolutely not. I don't want anyone to know. And the reason I said I don't want anyone to know is because I fear being overwhelmed. I fear that actually as a result of letting people into what was happening with us as a family, which felt incredibly fragile, felt incredibly vulnerable, would mean that as a church I'd be overwhelmed by people trying to help, which is obviously a brilliant thing. But I'm safety sensitive, so therefore if you come too close, I'll push you away. Now I try not to do that, but I'm just saying that's what I naturally do or unnaturally do, depending on how you look at it. The point is, I didn't want to do it, but my wife being more... Sensible than me said we are doing it and so therefore we did tell people about it and the most amazing thing happened as a result because we felt this incredible sense of being cared for by the church. Last week, Anna, who's our kids worker, organized the kids team to come in early and pray for Lulu over in that room and I knew it was going on but I didn't want to go in because I'd be overwhelmed by it. I kind of worked up the courage by the end, went in and started crying as soon as I started hearing some of the prayers that people were praying about Lulu. Why? Because you care. You, you showed that you cared about me. You showed that you cared about my family. And as a result, I didn't feel alone in it. I didn't feel like I was having to battle this on my own. The reality is if we are able to make ourselves vulnerable, then as a church, we step up and we experience the beauty of what it means to be family together. By the way, esteem sensitives, if in the same scenario, you wouldn't want to go in that prayer meeting. You wouldn't want to tell anyone because it was your fault. You were stupid enough to pour a boiling kettle at that height and therefore Lulu. And you wouldn't want to open yourselves up because you'd be criticized as stupid. Those of us who are separation sensitive, you wouldn't want to tell other people because it's a admission of need and of want. And therefore, it might mean that you're rejected because other people should be cared for by you. They shouldn't be caring for you as a result. So we all have these things 
that stop us from connecting together. But if we choose to actually make that step of stepping out and being vulnerable, it is unbelievable what will come as a result for us as a church. This sense of care and this sense of family will be unbelievable and will be the antidote to what we're reading about out there in terms of loneliness. But that doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean that it's something we can all automatically do. And there's an initial step that we all have to take in order to be able to do this with one another, particularly in our villages, in our midweek groups. And that is to go to God first. No matter which of those three camps you fall in, esteem sensitivity, safety sensitivity, separation sensitivity, as we take those tendencies to avoid connection to God, what we will find out is that God will do none of the things that we fear. So those of us who are safety sensitive, fear being controlled, if we go to God and open ourselves in vulnerability to him, what we will discover about God is he will never control us. He will never overwhelm us. He will never constrict us. Those of us who are esteem sensitive and we don't like this idea of being imperfect or of being criticized, if we take that tendency to be that way in relationships to God, what we will discover quite quickly is God will never criticize you. God will never point out your failings. In fact, he'll do the opposite. He'll come in his love and in his grace and he'll remind you again and again that he loves you for exactly as you are. Those of us who are separation sensitive, if we take that tendency to not want to be in the depth of relationship because we see ourselves as so intimately connected with other people, any idea of separation will mean that we're failing, will mean that we're alone, will mean that we're abandoned. If we take that to God, what we'll discover is that we can tell him every single need and want that we could ever possibly have and he will never run a mile. In fact, all that he does in our crap, in the stuff that we have in our lives that's bad, he moves towards us again and again and again and again. He just comes closer. He will never, ever abandon us. And it's only when we're able to take that stuff to God first that we'll be able to do what we would really love to do here as a church and become family and become vulnerable with each other. And learn to trust each other. Doesn't mean we'll always get it right. In fact, we'll definitely get it wrong. We will get hurt. But that, if our primary relationship is with God first and foremost, who never hurts us, who always gets it right, then we'll be able to do this. As messy as it will be, we'll be able to be family together. So why don't we do that now? Let's come before God. Let's stand and we're going to spend some time praying.